Hello and welcome to Catholic Answers Live. Kind of a special episode uh, today because I shouldn't say kind of, it is a special episode today uh, because it's Holy Thursday. And so for Holy Thursday, we're not going to take calls or anything. We're just going to talk with Joe Heschmeyer about Holy Thursday. Joe Heschmeyer, apologist here at Catholic Answers, the author of a whole bunch of wonderful books, including The Early Church Was the Catholic Church, and that will probably come in handy for our conversation today about Holy Thursday. Joe, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, we are into the thick of it now. This is the very uh, this is the whole deal. The, the, these few days, isn't it? Yeah, true to them. The uh, the big question about whether Lent has technically ended or not. It's kind of a three day unique liturgical season. That's the holiest part of the church's calendar: Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, Easter Sunday. And it, it, this um, comports with what the uh, the early church thought too. I mean, when you read the Gospels, the the detail of Passion Week is far in excess of the detail of any other part of Christ's ministry. I think this is most pronounced in the Gospel of John. Yeah. The first 11 chapters of John's Gospel, you see Jesus' public ministry, you get that whole kind of three-year span. And then you have just several chapters that just go very slowly. John, like 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, uh, into 18, are all just the Last Supper. And they're they're all just tonight. It's remarkable. It's it's all just recounting in incredible detail um, John's recollections from the last meal that he ate with Jesus before Good Friday. Um, yeah. And and it, but and it's done in. Uh, I mean, we I guess since we're on it, I do want to talk about that. Where when you read John's account of Holy Thursday. You're reading the account of an eyewitness, but you're also mm-hmm. reading a, an account that is for a church that is very well developed. So he's yes. speaking to a church that is spiritually and liturgically well developed. We're at least probably well, we're sixty years after the events. So this is yeah. A, I mean, there, there's some dating controversies about you know uh, when John wrote. Yeah. Ninety is the later of the dates, but okay, he's probably writing it towards the end of his lifetime. He's almost certainly writing it after the other three Gospels have both been written and are well in circulation. Right. Then Matthew, Mark, Luke, those stories are known, and John is is sort of filling in some details that the others don't include. So, so you know, it's, it's always interesting. People are like, oh, well, John doesn't include this or that or the other thing. Must not have been important. And it's like, no, it probably was just something that was already well known or well established. Right, right. And certainly Mark's Gospel was well known, and, and there's much of Mark's Gospel that is not in John's Gospel. As a matter of fact, some people have read them as John is saying, well, here's all the stuff you didn't get in Mark, almost. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's actually not a bad way. Uh, the way the Church Fathers describe it, they describe John as a kind of a, a gap filler gospel. Yeah. Now, I think he's doing more than just filling in sure. gaps. I think he's he's got a particular theological angle that he's he's approaching. Uh, he's looking at particular signs. He's looking at particular longer conversations. But where the other three gospels, the synoptics, try to give you the big picture of like, here's all the major events Jesus did. John isn't really that concerned with doing that. He's much more what were some of the intimate details of some of the conversations that he had? Like, let's spend an entire chapter just looking at him talking to the woman at the well. Yeah. And, you know, like those kind of questions, I feel like in the Gospel of Mark, that would be a two-line description. He he then spoke to a woman who went back and reported everything he said to her people. And it would just be like, that would be it. And then he'd be on to the next event where where John's much more like, let's stop and and really, it's almost like a, a biopic about yeah. like someone in World War II, 
versus like a war documentary that just is looking at like all the major well battles. Well said, well said, yeah. So, uh, but what I wanted to get at was that the, when, when John recounts for us the events of Holy Thursday, we, we should see it as he, he's a man who believes in uh, Christ as God. So he's trying to be completely faithful. I don't think you could look at an apostle and say he's trying to be anything but completely faithful. But he's also saying these things to a church that has a very well-developed um, liturgy around the Eucharist. So it's both <laughs> things. We're seeing what the early church believed about the Eucharist, but we're seeing also, yeah, but this isn't made up. This is exactly, this is, as John remembers it, this is exactly what happened. Yeah. And there's, there's certainly a liturgical pattern to his gospel. I mean, uh, just to give one example, look at how many times the Jewish feasts are referenced even when they're not central to like the event or the miracle that happens, Jesus will do something that in some way recalls or evokes, you know, so uh, for the Feast of Purim, uh, the, you've got like the festival or like Sukkoth, the uh, festival of tents, you've got the transfiguration where they say, well, let's make a tent for, you know, you and, uh, you know, Elijah and Moses. All of that makes more sense with the Jewish kind of backdrop. Well, likewise, like in John 6, when you says the time of, was near, he's giving you a liturgical framework for it. Yeah. Uh, when Jesus does the whole Eucharistic teaching in a Passover context, and then you know, if you've read the other Gospels, the next Passover is the Last Supper, when Jesus institutes the Eucharist. Well, now you've got like a couple reference points, uh, namely Passover and the Eucharist and, you know, Holy Thursday, to make sense of everything that's going to happen in John 6. He's, he's giving you those kind of clues to give it the liturgical setting it needs to, to make sense. So I would like to do a little bit of a then and now with you then. Uh, you know, you've studied uh, the early church, you've written about the early church, um, and you and you also studied for the priesthood, so you're <laughs> prepared to talk about the contemporary church. So in the I guess I would like to just ask you what happened on Holy Thursday. I mean, we can, we know the, I can look at it and say, here's the physical acts, but what also, what was, what was Jesus intending with the acts of Holy Thursday, I yeah. guess, is what I'm asking you. Yeah, well, I'm, I just referenced the Passover and uh, tying that in with Holy Thursday. So let's talk about that angle. Because there, in John 6, you, you get two indications. There are two Jewish references, um, one to the Passover and the other to the manna. And both of those are important prefigurements of what's going to happen on Holy Thursday. Uh, so just to talk a little bit about the way the Passover liturgy works you have two distinct actions. You have the preparation day in which the lamb is slain. And then that evening, which is the next day on the Jewish calendar, because uh, the day begins at nightfall. So the next day, uh, you have the Passover meal on the first day of unleavened bread. And so these were not two separate sacrifices. Like this is one sacrifice. You have the killing of the lamb, and then you participate in the sacrifice. How? Well, by eating the lamb. And so that's a really important sacrificial framework. Like when you go to eat the sacrificial animal, you are not re-sacrificing it, but you are participating in the sacrifice. You're part of, like the sacrifice is still continuing in some way. Uh, you are making it present. You're being involved with it. So if you were to just, you know, as, as an example, let's say a preparation day comes around, and the lamb is killed. And then you say, well, good enough. The lamb has been sacrificed. I don't need to smear the blood on the doorpost. I don't need to eat the lamb. I don't need to do anything like that. 
And so you just leave the lamb there and you go home. You're not done. Yeah. And that would that would turn out very badly for your family. Let me put it that way. You would you would not be passed over because right. you hadn't done what you were supposed to do to complete this sacrifice. So the completion of the sacrifice strikingly is not done by the priest in the temple. The completion of the sacrifice is done by those who receive the sacrifice and consume it. That's how you apply the sacrifice uh, to your own life, to your own self. And so if we take that framework, well, how does that apply in Holy Week? Well, Preparation Day, the slaying of the lamb, it's an obvious prefigurement of Good Friday. And John even describes Good Friday as Preparation Day in his account of the gospel. The uh, fulfillment of the Passover is pretty explicitly tonight. It's Holy Thursday. It's the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And uh, we get several indications of that in Scripture. Jesus repeatedly refers to it as his Passover or uh, going to prepare the Passover to eat with my disciples. Uh, St. Paul describes Christ as our Paschal Lamb or our Passover Lamb in 1 Corinthians. John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's all of these kind of Passover references. Now, really strikingly, at that Passover meal, we don't hear in any of the four Gospels about them ever eating lamb. And now that's a very strange omission. We hear about bread and wine. We don't hear about them eating lamb, but that's the center of the Jewish Passover liturgy. So the question is, well, where's the lamb? And the answer seems to be what Paul and John the Baptist have said, that Christ is the lamb of the new Passover. So the fulfillment of the Passover is happening at the Last Supper. Jesus is the center of that meal. Now, one of the reasons that matters is because the Passover is a sacrifice but not in the way that it's re-sacrificing the slaying of the lamb. And so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters say, how can you say the mass is a sacrifice? And the answer is, well, because we understand how sacrifices work. You know, uh, I'll give you a couple examples. First Corinthians 10, St. Paul is explaining why the Eucharist is a sacrifice. He says that because we partake of the one loaf, we are all one body. And he's explaining that idea. How is it that we receive the communion of the church through Eucharistic communion? Because he's, he's making a very important argument that we, we get wrong a lot. Like, how is it that the church is one? Well, the church is one because we all receive the Eucharist. Well, why is that? Well, he's going to give a couple examples. And he says, well, don't you know <laughs> that when the Jews eat the animal sacrifice in the temple, they become partners with them, just as when the pagans eat the food sacrificed at the table of demons, at the altar of demons, um, they become partners with that. And then he contrasts that with the food we're eating that's been sacrificed at the table of the Lord, which is to say the altar of the Lord. So he's very clearly referring to the Eucharistic banquet as a sacrificial meal, uh, that we are receiving Jesus in the Eucharist in a way that is best understood by thinking about the Old Testament Passover or in other, you know, sacrificial liturgies, and even thinking about the way pagan and demonic sacrifices work, because it's the same mechanism, just in the wrong direction. So it's a really good way of making sense of that framework and understanding that. So when a Protestant says, aren't you re-sacrificing Jesus? They're just revealing they don't understand those that twofold dimension, that the sacrifice includes both killing the animal and eating the animal, or in this case, both like Jesus' voluntary death on the cross and our reception of Jesus in the Eucharist. Beautiful. So um, uh, in order to have that uh, Eucharist, however, we have to have priests, and there's a priestly element to Holy Thursday as well. Yeah. So 
if you want to know what a priest is, a priest is one who offers sacrifice, and specifically one who offers sacrifice to God. That's not just true in Christianity, that's true in Judaism, that's true in paganism, that's just what it means to be a priest. The reason Protestants don't have priests is that they don't offer the sacrifice of the Mass. If they did, they would be priests. And so uh, a sacrifice offerer, the word for that in, in English is priest. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, that do this uh, mandate is instructing them to do a priestly thing, which is why Holy Thursday is viewed as both the institution of the sacrifice of the mass and the institution of the priesthood, because priest and sacrifice go hand in hand. Uh, and Jesus is, of course, both the priest and the sacrifice in, in the ultimate liturgy here. Uh, okay, now here's the problem with all that we have said. Uh, we started with John's Gospel, and none of this mm -hmm. stuff is in John's Gospel. There's the washing of it's the feet. It's true. <laughs> so yeah. why, why the yeah. washing—how does the washing of the feet, or what? what is the evangelist and what is the Holy Spirit who inspires the evangelist communicating to us in placing the washing of the feet uh, right there at this uh, key moment? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. Uh, one of the kind of dimensions, you see in Luke 22, Jesus telling the disciples that if they're going to leave, they need to be servants. Mm -hmm. And I think John is illustrating what that particular call looks like, The what's called the mandatum, like the command to to go serve. Uh, that's why, you know, sometimes Holy Thursday is called Maundy Thursday. That's coming from mandatum, from, from command. And this is when Christ commands the apostles to serve us. And we really like that. So, but it's also, it's an admonition for, for everyone. So if he's instituting a priesthood, he wants to make sure that it isn't uh, a dominating priesthood, that it isn't dominating leadership. Oh. And so he distinguishes it from that of the Gentiles. And I think we could even argue that it should be distinguished from that of even the high priest and the priesthood in his day, where they were not really in service of the people, that the, the leadership of the Jewish people at the time was not concerned necessarily with their spiritual welfare. I think we see that in a very tragic way uh, with Judas, that Judas actually has something of a change of heart after he betrays Christ. And he goes back and he tries to get right and he returns the money. And they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself, which is a staggering iciness of the soul. To have that little concern with someone who is in such deep grief over what they've done. And Judas then goes out and kills himself. Like the, the lack of charity, the lack of love, the lack of service that we see uh, in both the Jewish and I think the Gentile leadership, Jesus is trying to instruct us from the beginning to not be like that. And so often, I think it's easy for leaders in the church to still be like that. Like we didn't suddenly get cured of all of the effects of original sin. Uh, selfishness, sin, and the like are still present realities. But we have a clear model from the beginning with the sort of constitution of the priesthood. But that's not how it should be. And of course, that, that extends even more broadly. So there's a, a specific sense in which the apostles, in which all priests are, are called to live out the mandatum. But there's another sense, of course, in which all Christians are called to live that out. What's amazing to me hearing you talk about all of this is that um, it's essentially what we'll do today on Holy Thursday, that the we really haven't—it's not like we've uh, advanced beyond all of this, <laughs> you know? Like, no. it's, ba it's back to basics on Holy Thursday. So we just say, before we have to go today, a bit about uh, what will happen and what, what Catholics intend by what we're doing on Holy Thursday. 
Yeah, so this is the most beautiful liturgy. This is uh, a multi-day liturgy. There's going to be a, a few details that you'll notice. Uh, the first, this is called the Mass of the Lord's Supper. I mean, this is the Mass that celebrates when the Mass becomes the Mass. Yeah. So this is like the first Mass. Um, it will not have a closing rite uh, because it will continue in the Liturgy of Good Friday. Good Friday, this is a great piece of Catholic trivia. If you say, what's the only day of the year in which Mass is not celebrated? It's tomorrow. It's Good Friday. Because the you don't see the institution of the Eucharist continued on Good Friday. There's a lot of stuff that happens in the Good Friday liturgy, but not the Eucharistic uh, liturgy. You have a communion, you have you have a reception of communion, but you don't have the actual consecration. You use the host from the day before, and then everything is brought to a close at the Easter Vigil. So it really is three days of one beautiful liturgical action. And in that action, you have the, the reading of the institution, you have the washing of feet. So you'll, you'll notice uh, that they'll do the readings both from the Synoptic Gospels, well, actually from Paul, where he explains the institution of the Eucharist. Then you'll have John explaining the washing of the feet. That way you get both dimensions. You get what would have been covered if you'd read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, namely the institution of the Eucharist. Uh, but you'll also get this mandatum, this command to the washing of the feet. And and so both of those things will be present. And then you'll have, depending on where you are, perhaps a washing of the feet liturgy. Um, there uh, is a special liturgical instrument that's used instead of bells today. You'll hear a wooden clacker, uh, recognizing the fact that we are in this interesting place where it's not just the joy of Easter yet, there, so you you know when you have the elevation when there normally would be bells that have much more of a celebratory ring, you instead uh, they clack this wooden object that uh, I'm I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's uh, it's to draw it to, to serve the same purpose as the bells without having that kind of joyous Easter dimension to it. But then after that you'll have a Eucharistic procession, uh, a going out. You'll have the stripping of the altar. The joy of Holy Thursday will end in this kind of abrupt way. Right. Because what's going on is you've got the joy of the Last Supper, and then what happens? Well, they leave rejoicing, singing psalms, but then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ is betrayed. And so to mark that shift where it goes from being this very beautiful, intimate moment with the apostles to the moment of betrayal, they will strip the altar. You will leave the church in silence. There will be a Eucharistic procession. Usually the Pange Lingua is sung by Aquinas. Uh, and then they'll go to what's called an altar of repose. And they'll put the Eucharist in a side altar or somewhere where you can then spend an hour with our Lord. And that's really a great Catholic custom. Uh, you know, the apostles in the garden, all he asks him for is one hour. Could you not stay with me for one hour? And I think we should view him as asking us the same question tonight. Can we stay with him one hour? And, and some people, the answer for legitimate reasons may be no. But if you're able to say yes to that and, and spend that time there in the presence of our Lord, at some point between the end of the Mass of the Lord's Supper and midnight, I'd really encourage it. Yeah, it's a striking moment. I mean, I can remember, I, I think I say this probably every year at this time, but I, I, it really impressed me as a child. Like the Holy Thursday liturgy really impressed me as a child that the stripping of things and the the we're clearly heading the, all the signs uh, point in a in a direction of kind of uh, desolation and and gravity and you get that I mean whether you're 
an adult or a child, if you this, I think this is what liturgy is meant to be: is is the the enacting of the thing in such a way that you live it, not just uh, that you kind of uh, hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. That it really is. It, it comes to life in a certain way. There's something when this mass is done well. I think it, it may be the most beautiful Mass of the year. The Easter Vigil is a beautiful Mass as well. It's a very long one. Yeah. Um, but I, I think this might be the most beautiful one. Well, uh, th- was it a cog rattle? Is it's that, uh Is that the right uh, word or not? Crotalum, I think, is is the name for it in Latin. Oh. Uh, the, the, the wooden clapper. Uh, crota for cog and a loom for... No, I'm just messing up. I'm just messing up. <laughs> Joe, uh, thank you. We'll uh, see you tomorrow for a conversation about Good Friday. Great. Sounds good. Many blessings on this Holy Thursday. Likewise. And thanks to all of you for joining us for this little special conversation for Holy Thursday. We'll do another one tomorrow for a Good Friday, and we we'll hope to see you then right here on Catholic Answers Live.